subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripod Blogs community at Tripods.com, Jerry's Place for canine amputees and their people. Thank you for tuning in. This is Tripod Talk Radio, and today is Sunday, February 26, 2012. Please join us in the Tripods chat room at tripods.com slash chat, or call 310-388-9739 to join today's discussion. We're honored to have a very special guest, guest with us who brings back some fond memories from when we and Jerry helped kick off his two dogs 2,000 miles trek from Austin to Boston back in 2008 to help raise awareness for cancer in dogs. Luke Robinson is now the driving force behind the Two Million Dogs campaign for a new hope in cancer research. Thanks for joining us, Luke. It's great to hear from you. I always love talking to you and Renee, Jim. Thank you so much for having us. Luke, it is so great to have you. This this show has been a long time coming, so, so thanks for spending your Sunday with us. Our pleasure. All righty. Well, let's get started. Uh, I want to get personal here, and I am I am really curious. Um, what has your life been like since you finished the walk? Um, I, I you know it was it was two long years, and and I'm really curious. Did you find it hard to transition back in, into the real world? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, I had a plan and a vision of what would happen after the walk. You know, we'd get to Boston, then I was uh, uh, headed out to Colorado to work on the book with my editor, um, get a book deal, and then work on Two Million Dogs, our foundation, and then move on to our next adventure. But life, as you know, sometimes throws a curveball, and within less than, mm-hmm. less than a month after we finished our walk, Murphy was diagnosed with cancer. So that's what changed things. Um, but your question, that's a great question to ask about transitioning. I'm a part of a group of adventurers like myself who meet quarterly. These are guys who have walked um, across country, walked the perimeter of the country, and just basically people that do do crazy things like myself. And we meet (laughs) quarterly, and I've had had the great benefit to talk to several of them, and every single one of them, without exception, always talk about how the transition is difficult. Um, and so, yeah, that's part of it. But, you know, the truth is I really didn't have a lot of time to myself to even absorb the impact of the walk um, and then process that because, you know, within a month my entire focus was on Murphy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we want to talk about that in a minute. But um, I, I want to ask you, what what do you feel that is the biggest accomplishment that the walk itself achieved? Well, it was meet you guys, of course. Aww. <laughs> no, I, you know, um, 
It's a great question. And, uh, you know, I do reflect on that from time to time, uh, especially now as I'm, I'm writing about our, our journey. Um, you know, I think in, in all seriousness, it was meeting you um, and tripods and many other people like you that have been touched by cancer. Um, their companion animals uh, have been touched by, by uh, cancer. And what I feel like that we uh, did a wonderful job was build a network cross-country of people that have been touched by cancer in whatever capacity. And uh, so that's really become the foundation of our foundation, Two Million Dogs. So I think meeting all the people that we met on the road, hearing their stories and experiences with cancer, and then, you know, the vast majority of them, you know, still with us, still part of our journey uh, as it moves forward. I think that's the single most greatest accomplishment of Two Dogs, 2,000 Miles. That's beautiful. Um, you know, one thing I, I realized that when you first hear that your dog has cancer, you think you're the only person out there. You feel so alone. And it's not until you go through this journey that you realize you're not alone and, and there is a network of support. It's out there waiting for you. And, and there's great people like you out there to turn to and, and realize that you, you don't have to be alone. And, and so I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I mean, it's like this whole other world opens up to you, even though cancer is just, it's such an awful thing. But meeting so many people because of it is, is beautiful. It is, and I'm, I've met, you know, we walked across 16 states and uh, met thousands and thousands of people and continue to meet uh, so many people by, by virtue of our Facebook page and our network of people. So um, it is. I, I believe the human element um, of this is at the end of all of our journeys, at the end of our journeys, at the end of our days, I think the human element of this story will be the most profound. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a it's a bittersweet journey indeed. We learned that with Jerry and and, and you with Malcolm. How how we kind of hooked up and and we know you've been touched by cancer twice again with Murphy, um, and we know it's a difficult subject. But can you tell us what lessons you might have learned from dealing with cancer in dogs for a second time? Well, I, I'm very glad that you asked that question because I've been considering um, writing an article, sort of a case study about Murphy and his cancer. And, and taking that to veterinary and oncologists and sort of like, you know, uh, my layperson perspective of the entire process. And uh, I, I'd say that there are two things that I've learned this second go around uh, with cancer with Murphy. Um, and it's interesting because I, the first lesson, I didn't really uh, get it until I was in Kentucky talking with one of our supporters uh, a young lady in her 30s, and she was just diagnosed. Or they found her. Her doctors had just found a malignant tumor um, in her. And uh, at this time, Murphy was on his last legs. So we'd already gone through both rounds of radiation. We tried chemo, and uh, so we were just traveling and trying to, you know, live out his days as it were. And so I was talking to this uh, our supporter, and uh, and she. She was, uh, the, the, her oncologist had asked her, well, you know, here's treatment option A, here's treatment option B. And she said, I don't care, you could tell me 20 different treatment options, but get this freaking thing out of me now. And as I, as she said this to me, Jim and Renee, as she said this, I was sitting across the table, 
And I was just, I was overwhelmed. It was so powerful listening to her talk about her own experiences. And I realized that I, I realized something profound about my treatment approach to Murphy. You see, when Murphy was diagnosed at, at CSU with nasal cancer, his tumor was very advanced. And uh, so they felt that the standard of care would be radiation, not surgical intervention. And I agreed, after all, because there was the risk that surgery at that time, he could have died on the operating table. That was a, a fairly considerable risk because, again, the tumor was fairly advanced. So the decision that I made on behalf of Murphy was radiation. And in listening to our supporter tell her own story, I realized, Jim Renee, I realized that I made the decision for Murphy as his father. I did not make the decision as if I was Murphy, as if I was the one that had cancer. Because in listening to her talk about it, myself, I would have said the same thing. I don't care if it's risky. Get this thing out of me now. And I've talked to enough people, and I've been doing this for long enough, to realize that there's always regrets, no matter what you know uh, treatment regimen that you pursue. And it's just a tough business, no matter how you go around it. But I realized, listening to her and then recounting my own experience with Murphy, is if I had to do it all over again, I would have said, you know, I know there's a risk that we'll lose him on the operating table, but his prognosis is not great, you know, pursuing the standard of care, so let's get this thing out of him now. So that's one thing that I've learned, one of the lessons that I've learned. The second is, um, and we had, the, you know, one of the leading oncology teams in the country, so Please don't misconstrue this, and I hope your audience has, has, has any criticism on them. But look, the world of canine cancer is still rudimentary. You know, we're still years and years behind human oncology medicine, which in its own way is not that advanced the more you learn about it. So one thing that I learned is that there's not a lot of case studies out there that can help you make the decision. Um, to use an example with Murphy, is we tried one round of radiation. That failed. Not only did it fail, uh, he had a secondary tumor. The first was adenocarcinoma. The second was uh, uh, um, sarcoma. So he had a second tumor. So the first round of radiation failed. I made the decision to do a very aggressive three-day course of like basically hit him hard with radiation uh, to see if that was effective. That had never been done in nasal cancer ever. And so I made the decision. But at the same time, when I made the decision, I also spent a lot of time researching, well, how do, how do doctors, human oncologists, how do they treat patients in, in a similar cases? So I spent a lot of my time trying to research and understand what's going on in human medicine. So I, you know, um, in working with my oncologist, I came up with ideas. Well, what about you know, taking a drug-coated stent? and put, inserting that in his nasal cavity and uh, coating it with a chemotherapeutic agent. You know, can we do that? So I guess my, the second lesson that I, that I learned that I feel is tremendously important for people to think about when they first get that diagnosis is don't rely entirely on your veterinary oncologist because they look to the published research. And like in the case with uh, nasal adenocarcinoma, the only available research about chemotherapy in nasal adenocarcinoma was a small study that was done in Australia, 
and I think it was done with a dozen or so dogs. So because veterinary oncology is still a relatively new field, you know, don't feel like that, that you're limited to um, the treatment options that they give you, and, and definitely go out there and, and research and find out what they're doing in human medicine, because we know that, I know you, know you guys know this as well, we know that dogs get the same type of cancer that people get, so go out and see what they're doing. What treatment approaches are they doing out, doing in uh, human cancer? So those are the two big lessons I learned this time around with Murphy. Boy, we couldn't agree further. That's actually why we created the Tripods blog, so people could share all their stories and their chosen treatment plans. But you said something really important there about making the decision as Murphy's father. And I want to delve into that a little deeper because we truly believe it's all about the quality of life of the animal. And some people make certain decisions based on their own selfishness. I wonder if you could kind of address how you felt about that and, and how you took it upon yourself to make those decisions. You know, it's hard because I've met thousands of people and I've listened to their own unique circumstances and situations. So I try not to judge um, the treatment decisions uh, that people make. I only try to think about myself and the decisions that I would make. Um, I guess what I was saying was, you know, the decision I made, because, because I didn't want to lose Murphy and that there was a, there was a risk to lose Murphy on the, the operating table I said, well, let's just go with radiation. But if, if, but if the cancer was me, if, if, if I would, would go see an oncologist and he told me that you've got this tumor growing like right under your brain and right behind your eye in your nasal cavity, if he told me that, my gut reaction would be take this thing out. I don't care if there's a chance it will kill me. Let's just get this thing out of me. So, I, you know, I... I I have to walk sort of, you know, you know, balance sort of my own passion, my own sort of standard. And it's tough for me because, you know, I spared, you know, we did everything that we could to save Murphy. We, we treated him, you know, we put together the most aggressive therapeutic plan, and it failed. It failed. And that's going to happen sometimes, unfortunately and regrettably. But... I do feel that there are some people, given their own unique circumstances, that they have to sort of make the best decisions for their own circumstances. So it's just a bad business. And um, so I try to, not to judge people, um, but, but you're right. You know, try to think about and the, quality of, the quality of life is the absolute gold standard. When you're thinking about, you know, whether to, you know, continue treatments until everything's exhausted um, or you're thinking, well, you know, we're not going to be able to do any treatment at all, um, you know, always, you know, if there's a, I guess my answer would be, look, if you've got a good shot of extending your dog's life, go for it and, and go for it ruthlessly. That's my own personal, you know, I mean, you know, Murphy was my mate and I believe as his caregiver, it's my responsibility to fight for him, to fight for him as long and as hard as I can. I believe that's your responsibility as a pet parent. You make that, you make that implied contract. The minute you bring uh, uh, the life of another into your own, and that life can't speak for itself. Your companion animal can't speak for yourself. So by extension, it's your job to speak for them. And so that means that when, when they have, you know, when they get the diagnosis of cancer, I truly believe, this is what I feel for myself, this is my own standard, 
my own principles, I feel like it's your job to fight, to fight as hard and as long as you can. But when there is, when you've exhausted everything, then it's all about quality of life, palliative care and quality of life. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> it does. That is really, really well said, and, and I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of people have a hard time balancing fighting as hard as they can for their, their dog's life with their financial situation, um, and there's a lot of guilt involved there. Um, what would you say to somebody who, you know, they really wanted to fight harder, but it was going to cause them to go into some serious debt? Um, you know, how, how do you how do you reconcile that in your own head if you if you really want to give it your all, but you can't afford to do it? What would you say to those people? Well, the first thing I would say is that guilt is going to be a part of it, no matter if you spend fifty thousand dollars and you fly your you know your dog around to all the oncologists all across the world. You know, guilt is always a part of loss. And so that, that's applicable to everyone. Um, and, you know, I've, having met so many people that I've had met and listened to their own personal stories, you know, we can only always do the best that we can. That's life. That's the reality of life. And we can't move forward and do better if we spend our time Beating ourselves up. Mm-hmm. No regrets. That's one message we like to tell people. But let's let's talk for a minute about two million dogs, since the uh, the financial aspect kind of leads to you know studies that might be available, you know trials and that sort of thing. You formed two million dogs um, to promote canine cancer awareness and research, and your puppy up walks take place across the country, raising money to help fund comparative oncology studies. Can you tell us what kind of studies you fund and how you choose those? And then what you're currently doing? Yeah. Um, you know, having talked to so many of the thought leaders out there, veterinary oncologists, um, you know, the ones that really are intimate in canine cancer and comparative oncology research um, through the course of our travels, you know, I identified two main problems in uh, cancer research. And the first is that the vast majority of these studies are incremental. That means that, you know, basically we want to do a study where we tweak the dose. So we want to, for example, we want to, like, study if we increase uh, cisplatin by 5 micrograms per liter or whatever over the course. Or we want to add, we want to study uh, how um, adding a new drug into the cocktail uh, what the prognosis is about a certain cancer. Um, so I had the you know, benefit of being at the Veterinary Cancer Society, uh, presenting at the Veterinary Cancer Society uh, conference in San Diego in 2010 about our walk and our foundation. And it was fascinating listening to all of the presentations of the abstracts in that the vast majority of those studies were incremental. And I understand science is incremental. It's progressive. Um, so that was the, the problem number one that we saw uh, what's going on in canine cancer research. The second is is that a lot of the studies that are being funded were small, you know, $5,000, $8,000, $10,000. And so um, when we sort of set forth our scientific objectives and the scientific model 
that we wanted to pursue as a foundation, we decided a few things. First of all, look, you know, drug companies do cl clinical trials uh, to assess the therapeutic benefits of the products that they make. So we sort of felt like drug companies should be funding clinical trials and drug stuff, studies. So our foundation, we made a decision that we want to be focused more on the cause and preventative side. We didn't want to be funding drug studies. That's one of the first uh, criteria or aspects of our scientific model. The second is that we wanted, didn't want to go write a bunch of checks uh, for $5,000 or $10,000. We really wanted to uh, invest in larger, longer-term studies. And the third is, rather than doing a bunch of studies, we wanted to manage a relatively small portfolio of studies. So rather than having 10 or 15 going ongoing, we felt like that we wanted to put our resources, uh, invest our resources in a fewer number of studies. So this year, we funded our first study, uh, a mammary tumor study that began at UPenn um, and is now at Princeton. And so the basis of the, the study at Princeton is they, take, they took mammary tumors out of shelter dogs at UPenn. And so Princeton now is trying to understand the metastatic nature of mammary tumors in dogs and, and what key insights that gives us into how breast cancer spreads and, and metastasizes in people. So um, our first study was $50,000, and um, we'll be funding uh, another study this fiscal year as well. So we want to be doing probably two to three studies a year, I think. And again, our model is that cause preventative, uh, comparative, of course, all of our studies are going to be comparative, um, that benefits both pets and people, and we want to do larger studies and yet a smaller number of them. So that's sort of, um, you know, kind of an overview of our research model. We have that on our website, 2milliondogs.org. That's a, a good time for me to just remind people that people can help with these studies and help support this cause by visiting 2milliondogs.org and, 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 and pledge their dog as one of the 2 million and find a walk near you the next time one's available. And Luke, um, I wanted to ask you, um, as, as far as the studies go, are they entirely funded by the uh, the walks? Uh, no, uh, actually, um, uh, you'll have to bring Ginger on. She's the director of the foundation. She could speak more to the operational aspects of Two Million Dogs. I'm just my association is helping them with the science um, and new projects and uh, sort of thinking about the future of Two Million Dogs and what our future direction is. Um, but the walks uh, basically uh, go towards, you know, the operations of the foundation as well as to the funding of the studies. So um, mm -hmm. speaking of the Puppy Up walks, we started our first series of Puppy Up walks, and right after the walk, right, right after all walk across the country finished in 2010, we had 12 in 2010. This past year we did 27, and we think that we'll probably be doing 35 or so this year. So um, really pleased at how they're coming, but uh, uh, they're getting bigger and bigger, and we've kind of changed our, I guess, changed because our, our, the first thing is we thought, well, let's just, uh, I, I guess the way that I had, this vision I had for 2 million dogs was we wanted to get 2 million dogs to walk at the same time all across the country for cancer, and so we, we started having our walks um, only in November. Well, <laughs> 
obviously that's not tenable for like Alaska and yeah. some of the colder parts. So we've now sort of changed that, and so we're now having some of the cities doing walks at different times of the year um, that are more amenable to particular cities. So we've sort of changed that now. But uh, anyway, the Puppy Up walks are, have been huge. Um, this past year I was in San Antonio, and uh, I talked to so many city organizers and so many people, and all the feedback that I got was, it's like, man, we've been to so many different dog events, but this just has an energy we've never felt before. So the Puppy Up walks have been so tremendously successful, so absolutely wonderful. Uh, but if you have questions about, if you want to start a Puppy Up walk in your own city, uh, Ginger Morgan is the director, it's Ginger Morgan at 2milliondogs.org. She runs those. Or if you have more particular questions, you kind of think you should have Ginger on the show because, um, you know, she's doing, she's doing great things. I know one of the things you want to talk about was, you know, my role in the foundation and my future role. You know, Ginger is the, is the executive director of, of 2 Million Dogs, and she has just done a fantastic job of this organization. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, and so I, I, you guys need to have her on the show because she's truly, she's a true believer. And the funny thing is, just trail magic, we walked through Memphis, Tennessee. At the time, she was the executive director of the uh, Memphis Humane Society and uh, uh, Humane Society there, and our first event was at her facility. And so, just trail magic led me led us to her. She fell in love with Hudson and Murphy, and she's been with us ever since. So she's just done a phenomenal job with the foundation. And so we funded our first study. We'll do another one this year, and um, we've got big, big plans for the future. She's done a, a fantastic job indeed. When would people expect the next official round of walks to take place? Well, uh, we've got a couple. Uh, gosh, I'm, I apologize. I'm a little bit out of my element because I'm not involved in this aspect of 2 million dogs. Uh, but we have several coming up throughout the year. Ginger's actually doing one in Memphis in April, I think. We have a couple of more going on, but the bulk of our walks are still in November. So, so I guess season three of the Puppy Up walks will primarily be in, in December. And like I said, we, we're in line, I think, to have maybe 35 or so this year. So we're growing at a good clip, and uh, it's just, I mean, things are just going so well. Well, I'll tell you, when you had the Puppy Up walk in November in San Antonio, when we were there, we were really grateful it was November. <laughs> but I know that the Colorado people were probably a little cold. <laughs> Yeah, we're so glad to see you guys. I mean, again, I mean, Trail Magic always keeps bringing us together. That's why I dig you guys, and I love what you guys do with Tripods. I mean, you were one of the most invaluable resources out there. I don't know if you know this. You're, you're one of the most uh, invaluable resources out there on the Internet. I say that with all sincerity because I've seen where you guys began, having met Jerry uh, and spent time with Jerry and you guys prior to when, when we launched the walk. We're coming up on the fourth anniversary of that, by the way. March 16th, wow. 2012 will be the four-year anniversary of when this whole thing began. And so to see where you were back then with tripods and where you're at now, I mean, you guys have done, um, we've done God's work. I mean, you've done tremendous things. And I just wanted to convey my utmost appreciation for the work that you guys do at tripods. Oh, you're sweet, Luke. But we like to say you do all you did all the hard work. You know, you went out there and, and did that walk that um, not, hardly anybody's uh, brave enough to do. That was that was pretty amazing, and the, and the work that you're doing now is incredible. And and what I want to ask you as as you know the visionary for for two million dogs, 
Um, where do you see it headed, and, and where do you see yourself in, in the future of the organization? Well, um, I, I can't speak specifically to the near-term and long-term visions for 2 million dogs uh, because mm -hmm. we're expanding our scope and and we're going, we're expanding our scope because we've really begun to appreciate just both sides of the, the, the problem of cancer and our companion animals. So we're talking about, you know, expanding that vision in a way that we haven't done before. So that's the foundation. I can't really speak to specifics um, about that because we're exploring that at this time. But I can say that we just, we're, you know, the, the further and further that our foundation, the more work and research that a foundation does, the more that we begin to truly appreciate the size and the scope of cancer in our companion animals. So we feel like as a foundation that we have um, a tremendous benefit and tremendous uh, vantage point to be able to work at, on multiple levels. Um, now, me personally, um, uh, you know, you asked early on about, you know, transitioning back to life off the road. I, I still haven't transitioned, and I'm still... And so now, having laid Murphy to rest and adopting a new puppy, Indiana, and uh, training mm -hmm. him of being just a wackadoodle to trying to be sort of a, a normal, well-adjusted puppy, it's time for us. We're now at a point to plan our next adventure. So Two Dogs, 2,000 Miles was the first of many adventures, and so we're now planning and focus on, on the next. So me personally, aside from the foundation, my job is sort of being sort of the visionary, working on, on projects, and being sort of the spokesperson for the foundation, and then working on things that can kind of truly set forth the vision of, of the foundation. And so everything I do personally... We look forward to finding out more details. I hate to wrap this up, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for joining us and invite everyone to find out more information at 2milliondogs.org. Thanks again, Lou. Until next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts. And claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.